Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone. This is Slash Film Daily for June 29th, 2017, and I'm your editor-in-chief, Peter Serretta. Every weekday, we will bring you the most interesting news from the world of movies and television and wrap it up with a deeper dive into one of our great features on SlashFilm.com. On today's show, we will talk about a number of issues with our guest, Jacob Hall. We're going to be talking about Neil Marshall going R-rated with the next Hellboy movie, the prospect of Blade returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Michelle Rodriguez threatening to leave Fast and the Furious, as well as the possibility of a James Bond cinematic universe. In our feature of the day, we will have Ethan Anderton on to talk about his conversation with Edgar Wright about the movies that influenced Baby Driver. So sit back, relax, and we'll get to all that in a bit. But first, I wanted to talk about a couple movies. Last night, I was at the Spider-Man Homecoming premiere in Hollywood, California. Uh, I'd seen This is the second time I've seen the movie, and guys, this is a great Spider-Man movie. I'm not sure it tops Spider-Man 2. Uh, that Sam Raimi film, for me, is one of the best comic book movies of all time. But this film uh, gets the character right. And at its core, it, it's a coming-of-age high school drama. And the best moments of that film are going to be those John Hughes-like moments. I can't wait for you guys to see it. Um, also, last night, our uh, reactions, our first reactions for Valerian, the new Luc Besson movie, came out. Uh, I, I posted my reaction on Twitter, and we, we we did a roundup of the reactions on SlashFilm.com. You can read all the reactions. But I'll give you my quick take. Is uh, The first half of Valerian is visually stunning, gleefully inventive, unpredictable, and bonkers insane. Uh, each sequence in that first half is filled with creatures and concepts you've never seen before. Um, there, there's some crazy interdimensional stuff going on there that's must be seen. Unfortunately, the second half of the movie becomes more formulaic, less exciting. Uh, the characters aren't so much as interesting as the world, but despite all that, those problems, I would say that this movie needs to be experienced in 3D on the biggest screen possible. You know, I, I'd highly recommend it, even though the movie is not a home run. I, I hope that this movie does well. I suspect it won't, but I want to experience more of this world. 
And for the news, I'm bringing on managing editor of SlashFilm.com, Jacob Hall. Hey, Peter. Happy to be here. Let's jump into this. You're a big James Bond fan, and the rumor mill is going wild about the possibility of a James Bond expanded universe. Everybody's doing expanded universes these days. Why not James Bond? What do we know about this? Well, what we know is that it's a rumor in the very literal sense of the word rumor. It comes from Jeff Snyder of the tracking board on his Twitter feed in the middle of another conversation, mentioned that the Bond producers, the Broccoli family, who have controlled the Bond series since the 60s, are interested in possibly expanding the Bond universe, so to speak. And that's where it begins and ends. There's no actual reporting on this. It's just a guy with a track record uh, of getting things right saying this on social media. Uh, and truth be told, this is totally in keeping in with the Bond traditions, so to speak. If you go back and look at the James Bond movies, so few of them are actually good movies. I mean, maybe there's five or six of them that are good, a lot of them that are interesting or fun, and there's a lot of bad ones. So that the fun in the James Bond movies has always been, okay, what trend are the Bond producers chasing in this given era, in this given movie? And right now, cinematic universes are hot. And in the same way that 10 years ago, the James Bond movies wanted to be The Born Identity, uh, and five years ago, they wanted to be Christopher Nolan movies, now they want to be Marvel movies. And I think that's... Go inspire a lot of groans, but I think for like the, the Bond historians out there, it's going to get a lot of nods of, oh yeah, we've seen this before. So I, I'm not the hugest of Bond fans, probably because of what you said, uh, you know, the quality factor of, of those movies. <laughs> uh, there's one good for every three that are bad, at least in my opinion. What could they do with the cinematic universe? What, what are possible spinoffs? Well, James Bond has always had a number of reoccurring allies and enemies. They're the famous ones like M and Q and Moneypenny who are always, at the beginning of the movie, show up at the office, give him his marching orders, give him his gadgets, and he goes on his mission as a, as a solo guy. But there's also been recurring uh, characters, most notably Felix Leiter, the American CIA agent, who has popped up in many James Bond movies, especially the early Sean Connery ones, where he's been played by a different actor in almost every single movie. But he's most recently been played by uh, Jeffrey Wright in the, in the Daniel Craig movies. And he's very different than Bond. He's, he's rougher around the edges, less of an action man, more of a um, coordination bureaucrat. But he's one of Bond's closest allies. And Jeffrey Wright is such a commanding screen presence that I can imagine him making more of a staid, low-key thriller starring Felix Leiter. I mean, I don't know who else would be up for that, but I know I would. And also, Spectre went out of its way to reintroduce the Bond allies as being characters of action whereas previously they were all about getting him his stuff so he can go on his way the climax of specter has m q and money penny who's now been transformed into a former agent herself all assisting him in the final battle so i feel like they're, they've reset up all these characters they used to be desk job characters characters who just espouse exposition and get bond prepared and then let him do his thing are now part of a team and whether that was intentional or not, I feel like all these characters are being situated so they're capable enough to carry their own movies. It seems like they're having a lot of trouble getting another Bond movie on the rails. Is this gonna like? Is this something that could actually happen? It you know it takes years for them to get a Bond movie going. Yeah, every ten or fifteen years, the Bond movies hit a snag. In in the late eighties, uh, there was legal issues that led to a six year gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye. And then post-Die Another Day, there was a four-year gap. 
as everybody tried to figure out how you recover <laughs> from dying another day, which meant a total reboot. And now we're in a situation where uh, Eon Productions, the Broccoli's production company, are no longer in business with Sony. They're taking pitches from every other studio in town, including Sony, who want them back. And if you go on the site, you can find stories about the extravagant ways various studios are trying to woo them. So right now, I wouldn't be surprised if the studio who wins the Bond franchise next would be the one who comes in and says, hey, we'd be willing to build a Bond universe here. I'd be interested to see if that happens. It seems since Deadpool and the success of that movie that everybody's going for these R-rated superhero films. And now we are learning that the new Hellboy film from Neil Marshall, Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen, is going to be R-rated. Neil Marshall basically says that this is due to, not due to his bloodlust, but due to him <laughs> trying to stay true to the comic. The, the comic is obviously much darker than even the Guillermo del Toro movies were. And, and he's also talked up that they are going to go more practical with this one. Uh, what do you what do you have to say about that, Jacob? Well, I'm a big Hellboy fan uh, of the comics and of the Del Toro movies. And I'm also a big Neil Marshall fan, so there's a lot of things here I like. I do think that the whole emphasis on the R rating here is odd because even though the Hellboy comics are a bit grimmer and a bit more horror oriented than Del Toro's movies were, they aren't ultra violent. They aren't gory. They aren't even violent in the same way that. Neil Marshall's filmmaking tends to be violent. So they may say, we're going back to the comics, but this feels very much to me like a reaction to Logan and Deadpool about the whole making comic book movies for an adult audience. And I'm not opposed to that. I say, go make a bloody Hellboy. I really don't care if that's the direction they take. But I do think that's a little disingenuous to say, hey, this is what the comics call for. Because it, it really doesn't. But at the same time, Neil Marshall is this filmmaker who I've been rooting for for a long time. It's like his work in Game of Thrones has pushed him back into the spotlight after making movies that are good but underseen. So you know what? If he wants to make a bloody Hellboy movie with practical effects, I say go for it. I honestly have not read the Hellboy comics. It's one of my uh, the holes in my comicology library right now. But I, I did enjoy the Guillermo del Toro movies. But one thing I didn't really enjoy is the extensive use of CG or... At least it seemed like he was always chasing, never quite getting to the the level that he wanted to have things. At least that's what it seems like to me. And it seems like Neil Marshall wants to do more things practical than CG. But how much practical can you do in a Hellboy movie, really? Well, my personal favorite Hellboy stories um, from over the years are not the ones where he's battling world-ending monsters or the ones where he's saving... Uh, the earthy realm from hell or even the later BPRD stories from, from post Hellboy, which are about literally fighting the apocalypse. My favorite Hellboy stories are these sort of low key ghost stories, these investigation tales where something creepy is going on and Hellboy is called in and he, and he finds a ghost or a demon or a monster and he punches it until it's gone. And for me, I think the Del Toro movies already scratched the bigger Hellboy story itch. I mean, if they're going to go R rated, if they're going to go practical, you might as well reduce that scope. You might as well um, go back to Hellboy the Investigator, Hellboy the Detective, Hellboy the guy, the blue-collar working stiff who happens to be a demon who goes on jobs across the world and just wearily fights things. That's the Hellboy I love, and I think that's the opportunity we could be looking at here. So in, in the news is that Ke Kevin Feige is saying that there could be a future for Blade in the MCU. 
Um, I mean, it seems very tentative. He says, you know, we think it would be cool someday. And Blade was one of the movies that he worked on when he started at Marvel 17 years ago. Also said that while they're not currently planning any R-rated movies at Marvel, uh, it's not out of the question, which is kind of weird because you'd think Disney would want to keep it a little uh, tame. I'm not even sure I can imagine how Blade would fit into the MCU. I can imagine him maybe having a Netflix series and having his little corner of, you know, New York or whatever city he inhabits. But I'm not sure I I, I see him, you know, teaming up with the Avengers. What what do you think Blade's role will be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe when he's added into the mix? Uh, I think think if he's added into the mix is the big uh, key word here because I think... Nobody is better at hedging their bets than Kevin uh, Feige. Nope, he knows how to speak Hollywood and speak blog better than anybody else. He always has a good quote. He always, he never shuts any doors. And I'm, it's always impressed me, but it's also frustrating with a news piece like this because he's pretty much saying, "Yeah, we have Blade. Blade will come back, maybe at some point." But uh, yeah, you're right. Um, Blade is an odd fit for the MCU because a half vampire vampire hunter uh, in this world feels weird and for me it's always been the charm of marvel comics is that it's like oh here's the hulk and he's fighting dracula all of a sudden because that stuff happens and when you're in a comic book world and you have so many issues and so many series and you can literally do something to please everyone and have something for everyone it feels a little bit maybe easier whereas blade in the mcu i think is not quite a step too far because we already have an, an, a super soldier and a norse god fighting together but I do wonder if the kind of thing people would accept easily. So I think you're right. I think that if this does happen, and I honestly don't see it happening anytime soon, I think Netflix. And I do think that there's potential for uh, Blade and Luke Cage to team up because Blade very much has the same black exploitation origins that Luke Cage has, and they both have a similar vibe. And I think there could be a, a fun personality dynamic going on there. Huaytran Bowie has this article on SlashFilm.com about Michelle Rodriguez, one of the stars of the Fast and the Furious franchise. She basically, on social media, has threatened to leave the franchise if the female characters don't get better parts. And Rodriguez is saying, quote, I hope they decide to show some love to the women of the franchise on the next film, or I might just have to say goodbye to a loved franchise. It has been a good ride, and I am grateful for the opportunity the fans in the studio have provided over the years. And this franchise really hasn't shown that much love for female characters over the year. I mean, Jordana Brewster, for much of the series, was <laughs> was really a two-dimensional, you know, character. Uh, I mean, they have had great actresses. I mean, Gal Gadot was, was is in the part of this franchise. They I just, bet they regret killing her off. Yes, <laughs> especially now that Wonder Woman has, you know, become such the mega hit that it has and um i mean what obviously they have charlie's theron now and um, helen Mirren, and uh, i think they're setting them up for bigger roles in the next two films of this last trilogy but what do what do you think about what uh, is is this just idle threats michelle rodriguez Uh, michelle rodriguez has always been outspoken she's always sort of been her own person I've always liked about her. I've always enjoyed how you kind of feel like if what she says makes her career crash and burn, she really wouldn't care. And that's something you don't see very often, and I appreciate that. I do wonder if how serious she's being or if she's just talking on the internet, which is something that we all do. Um, but she's right. If you look at the female 
female characters, you have Jordana Brewster, whose job is to worry. Uh, even her job is to scowl. Other characters' jobs are to die, so they can give the men something to do. So, for a series that has been so open and progressive about showing people of different races and backgrounds coming together and to the tune of billions of dollars worldwide, it, it is interesting that interesting is the wrong word. Let's say let's say gross that they had never actually had a female character who could stand up to Dom and and uh, Hobbs and all the other main characters. So I don't think this is going. She's going to do good in the, make it in this. I think that uh, we'll, when Fast and Furious Nine comes around, we'll be seeing Letty. I think Michelle Rodriguez will be back, and I really hope that the studio takes this kind of stuff to heart, and not just because she's threatening to leave, but because it's the right thing to do. Part part of me thinks that you're right. Says what she wants to say, and another part of me thinks like, oh, maybe her contract's up, and maybe this is a negotiation <laughs> tactic. But, and on the other hand, if you think about it, you know, she has, what, three, four Avatar sequels coming up. Uh, you know, she she doesn't need the money. We're going to let you go before we move on to our future presentation. Where can we find more of your work on the internet, Jacob? I am on Slash Film every single day uh, in some capacity. Whether my byline is there or not, I'm behind the scenes lurking, keeping things running at the best of my ability. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at Jacob S. Hall. And this is only a mere selection of the stories on SlashFilm.com today. So head over to SlashFilm.com for the latest and greatest movie news. And now it's time for our feature presentation. On the phone is Bradford Omen. You know as Ethan Anderson on SlashFilm.com. Brad, what do you have for us? Well, uh, in honor of Baby Driver coming out this week, we sat down um, on the phone to talk to Edgar Wright, the director and writer and he talked to us about 10 movies that influenced Baby Driver. And now these are movies that um, he picked that come be- basically come before 1994 because that's around when he first came up with the idea for Baby Driver and when he started working on it. So there aren't really any movies on this list after that. So a lot of these are older classics from the 1960s up through the 1980s. And uh, the first one that he talked about is Bullet which is from 1968. So let's uh, hear what he had to say about that. We have a clip of this. I want to just say that the audio is never intended for air. It's a phone call. So please excuse the, uh, the tinny audio. And here is Edgar Wright talking about Bullet. I think when Bullet came out, I think it was one of the most, um, is notable in terms of it being a car chase. That was a sequence that kind of fully, dominates the movie like the whole film is building up to it and then when you actually get into the the actual sequence i mean maybe you could check how long it is i want to say it's like six or seven minutes long but it's just like a a wordless action scene so it does feel like that thing which is such an influential sequence not just in terms of inspiring like sort of hundreds of other car chases in movies but also just the premise of it being the plot building up to the point where you have this cat and mouse chase between Steve McQueen and Bill Hinkman. So you're building up to that sequence with, uh, you know, a, a cat and mouse kind of chase with the Charger and the Mustang. And it, I think it's just one of those, it's one of those sequences. And obviously, like, sort of, you know, things have become more state-of-the-art in terms of the way things are shot now. But it is, um, it is extraordinary... You can't really, I can't really think of the hills of San Francisco without thinking of the bullet chase. It, you know, really, this, like, not only is McQueen and his car iconic, but just 
the cars going over those hills was incredible. And I think there's something in the fact that it was a British director, Peter Yates, shooting his first U.S. movie. Um, you know, that's always an interesting thing to me is, you know, is when um, British directors kind of like sort of take like a, a foreign eye to a, like a, a, an international location as far as they're concerned. And you've got to think that Peter Yates must be sort of part of that, the idea of, you know, in San Francisco, it's like, oh, we should do a chase on these hills, you know. But it's, it's, it's amazing to me that that, that that scene is so famous, I can't think of the hills of San Francisco without thinking of it. The other thing I really like about it, and I used to have some dialogue in Baby Driver that, um, about this, which I actually cut out of the draft, because there was a whole bit of dialogue in Baby Driver about um, somebody playing the chase music from Bullet. Get, get the soundtrack of Bullet so we can play the chase music, and then somebody else points out that there is no chase music in Bullet, that the music is actually the sound of the engines and the wheels screeching. Because Lalo Schifrin's score, and this incredible cue, it's called Changing Gears, is leading up to the chase kicking off, and then the chase kind of explodes, and and, and it's an amazing sequence with, 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 with no, like, score. And I, I just love how pure it is. It's, you know, and also what's... It's also the other interesting thing about it is that McQueen seems to be doing a lot of his own driving. Like it was one of the first movies to lock um, lock the um, cameras to the cars and shoot the actors for real for the most part. Now there's not a lot of process work. Sometimes when you see earlier like car chases in even in Bond films and stuff, it's done with like sort of back projection. But bullet feels are very real, and I think that's the reason why it was so revolutionary at the time. Bill Hinkman, the guy who's pursuing Steve McQueen, the one who buckles in, is also the stunt driver in The French Connection. So interesting. Oh, cool. He's the guy who's playing um, Popeye Doyle's um, stunt double, Gene Hatton's stunt double in The French Connection. He was also, Bill Hinkman is other guy, sort of more like sort of infamous claim to fame, is that he was the first on the scene of the James Dean's fatal crash because they were driving to the Speedway together. Oh wow! Bill Hinkman was in the car behind, and was the guy that was first on the scene when, like, um, James Dean and his passenger were like um, in that horrific crash. Right. And next up, Edgar Wright is going to be talking about what film, Brad? Uh, it's the original Italian Job from 1969. Uh, this was the next one chronologically. And he had some really interesting things to say about this, including something about the ending. So spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen this movie since it's been out for nearly 50 years now. Yes, 50-year-old spoiler coming up. It's funny, when I was writing, when I was thinking about Baby Driver, I knew, I knew in my head that like, it probably wasn't a British film. Because aside from Peter Yates' robbery... Um, there's not too many, like, sort of um, car chase movies in, in the United Kingdom. And also, especially, like, in, in recent years, in the last, like, 25 years, the centre of London has become kind of car chase proof. <laughs> somebody said to me the other day, what about the Italian job? And I said, well, in the Italian job, <laughs> the, main, the, main, um, the main chase is in Italy. Right. <laughs> the mini chases. Uh, but I mean that is a movie that I think is like I, I think about this movie a lot and um, and what and it is like it is a, an exceptional like an interesting sort of film other than the car chase because it's kind of it's very in the UK it is a very very famous movie um, it's one of those kind of uh, 
Christmas um, holiday standbys that's always on TV. And, um, you know, the Michael Caine line, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Yeah. It's like one of the most famous like British one-liners of all time. Uh, but it is also the things that I love about this film is, I mean, obviously, as a kid, I mean, it's probably one of the first car chases I really remember um, seeing in a movie. And just because the minis are like red, white, and blue, it's such a sort of product of like a um, the swing of sixties and a sort of like a, a real boom time for like London and the Union Jack. And the, the other thing I love about this sequence, apart from the stunt driving and just how fun it looks, you know, it's it's not this isn't a gritty um, <laughs> a gritty movie like some of the other ones. This is like a fun caper movie. Uh, the other thing that's extraordinary to me about this film is I love Quincy Jones's score. Quincy Jones's score, and particularly that track called. Um, it's caper time. He's incredible. It's, uh, so I, I have very fond memories of this movie. I also absolutely adore the ending of The Italian Job. I think the finale, the fact it ends on a literal cliffhanger is fantastic. And I always wondered, like, I was curious about the ending because it seems like, it seems like a studio wouldn't let you do something like that today. It's such a great ending. And even the very final line of Michael Caine, when the bus is kind of like teetering on the cliff and the, the gold is at one end and the gang are at the other end. And Michael Caine turns around and goes, Lads, I've got an idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a great idea. It's one of the two. Yeah, exactly. It comes, to, it comes to the helicopter shot on Quincy Jones' score and then that's the ending. And I think, what an amazing, highly memorable ending. Like the perfect way to end like a, a heist movie like that. And that was a great talking about Italian Job. One of 10 films that Edgar Wright talked with you about that inspired Baby Driver. Can you tell us about the coverage on the site? Yeah, so uh, we split this up into two parts because we talked to Edgar for so long that it was just extensive enough that we needed to split it up. So uh, you can see the first five films that span from 1968 to 1974 on Slash Film right now. And then the second part will be published on Friday morning, which spans movies from 1974 to 1985. Um, it's, it's a really fascinating feature. Uh, some of the other movies he talks about are obvious ones like The French Connection and The Driver, but then he also dives into a, some more obscure ones like uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and we talk about Blues Brothers, and it's just it's, it's so fantastic to listen to him talk about movies because he's clearly so passionate and so knowledgeable, and I, I could have listened to him just talk about movies endlessly like this. Yeah, no, uh, Edgar Wright is a true film fanatic, and I could listen to him talk about movies forever and ever and I, I love every year he releases his top movies of the year and it's always a, a great list to read uh so yeah find that and more on slashfilm.com where where can we find more of your work brad um writing on slashfilm.com all the time you can find me on twitter at ethan underscore anderton and check out my podcast called go flicks yourself where we talk about movies and trailers and crack a lot of weird jokes other features you can check out on SlashFilm.com right now include Chris Evangelista's look at the top 10 Edgar Wright scenes of all time. We have our weekly water cooler where the SlashFilm staff gets around, gets together and talks about things other than movies and television. I talk about Ed Brubaker's awesome comic book, Kill or Be Killed. There's a lot of great stuff in there. You should check it out. Uh, Jack Drew's next audio commentary column deals with Michael Bay audio commentaries and if you have never listened to Michael Bay audio commentary you should it's entertaining uh Josh Spiegel returns with an unpopular opinion on Edgar Wright's The World End claiming 
that that is Edgar Wright's best movie to date. He's insane, but you have to read it. All that and more on SlashHome.com.